is launching a new organization called Stop the Scalpings, which intends to uh, challenge what he argues is a an attack on conservative media figures, uh, radio hosts, television hosts, uh, launched by uh, organizations like Media Matters, which I think is backed by George Soros and others, and, uh, and that they are just taking uh, conservatives off the air by means of boycotts and, and et cetera. And then at the bottom of the hour, I will be joined by um, Heather McDonald, who is a, um, a Manhattan Institute uh, scholar. She is the author of the book called The War on Cops. Um, Heather was invited by a conservative club to speak at the Claremont McKenna University campus. And uh, what unfolded there uh, in the course of her speech is something that uh, one would not expect to happen in this country. It was just a, a complete, um, you know, like a fascistic, you know, like shout down with, uh, to the point where she had to be escorted off the campus and she ended up having to deliver her speech in a locked room where it was streamed live. They, she couldn't even appear, apparently, uh, in front of people. So we'll hear that directly from Heather. And I guess that um, the organization that's that's behind it, at least uh, among many, is called Antifa, which is anti-fascist. Um, you know, it's the same old people. I mean, this is the same people who, you know, with the knitted caps and the, um, you know, the little gray, you know, ponytails. You know, they sit around <clears throat> and they, they, they protest um, on the drop of a hat. Except uh, they've become violent, and I think that um, it's my custom as a radio talk show host. And I don't think I'm going to do it here at Tufts. I think I'm probably going to do this one just on my podcast because I, you know, I have to be very careful here because I'm under investigation by the anti-bias police on the campus. So I mean, I can't. I can control what I say, but I can't necessarily control what someone else says and. They might say something that could get me in trouble and get me thrown off the air. Not that I won't get thrown off anyway, but I don't want to, you know, I don't want to welcome that. Um, hello, you're on the air. Hello, you're on the air. Thanks for joining me. Uh, Chuck. Yes. Oh, Chuck, hi, it's Brian Maloney. Hi, Brian. I just introduced you. Thanks for joining me. Uh, you're starting up Stop the Scalpings. You're the editor of Media Equalizer, longtime radio guy, formerly WRKO. Uh, Brian, talk a little bit about what this is about, what your group doing. Well, what we're doing here, uh, and I appreciate you having me on today, really do. It's a pleasure. And, you know, really what we're trying to say here is that we've had enough. Um, that, and, and you've worked in the media a long time, and you know what it's like behind the scenes. I mean, there's a constant push behind the scenes to undermine, eliminate, water down opinions that are anything other than the far left. And I think that that's where we've drawn the line and that, you know, we've said that um, enough is enough. I mean, we at least had one channel and apparently the left can't allow us to even have that. Um, and now we're seeing that internal battle from within and these pressure campaigns uh, to remove conservative hosts from Fox. And so what we've done is we've begun a group 
uh, called Stop the Scalpings. And the name is kind of intentionally provocative. We're intentionally really trying to mm. <laughs> anger the other side because we, it's a, kind of can be enjoyable at times. Um, and so the idea behind that is that the left has a habit of claiming scalps. So it's not enough to have someone disagree with you and oppose them and debate them. You have to tear them down. You have to remove them um, and, uh, you know, eliminate them. And so what we've said is no more scalps. And, you know, and and we're consistent on that. We don't think that Stephen Colbert should be kicked off the air either. We can denounce what he says. You know, we can oppose what is being done, but we don't necessarily have to remove everyone we don't like from the air. No, we don't, but at the same time, that's how they play the game. I mean, you're quite right. They don't want to yeah. debate people. They don't want to get into issues. They try to destroy the opposition. That's what the left does. And so, therefore, it kind of raises the question that maybe if that's, how they, if that's the field of battle, why come disarmed? Maybe we should go after Colbert, demand he goes off the air, sue him, bring boycotts, well, you know, send, yeah, send troops out of the street and stop mugging people like they do. Yeah, well, it's a great debate to have. To me, I just think that if we're saying that we want to stop the scalpings, we don't want to scalp them either. We just want a divergence. You know, we want we want different views out there. Um, but you're right. I mean, the, the question is with him is, you know, I mean, it's vile commentary, and we can certainly stand up and scream. And, but it is true. I mean, you know, I mean, Sean Hannity or anyone on Fox would never get away with uh, saying those kinds of things on the air. And, you know, if you substitute one president for the last one that we had, and you say something like that. I mean, the media, there'd be a firestorm for weeks about it. So, so I think that, you know, we're fed up. And so Melanie Morgan, who is a, also a former talk show host and also a former Fox News Channel guest, so her and I have both been on many Fox News Channel shows in the past. Uh, we'll see if we're ever on there again because mm -hmm. it's been kind of annoying the, the, the top brass there um, this week, which is just fine with me right now. But uh, so the... Yeah, so, so Melanie is also a former host, and so the two of us uh, just started talking about the situation, and we were aware of some inside information, things that were rumbling over inside a box, and we just started chatting. And so it was just one week ago that we hatched this plan to start this new group called Stop the Scalpings, which if you look on Facebook or Twitter, just use hashtag Stop the Scalpings, one word, and you can take a look and see what we're doing. And in just a week... Um, our new fledgling uh, political organization has attracted 3,500 members, which to me, I, out of That's one huge. Reason, it was word of mouth. Until two days ago, it was word of mouth, and now we're getting a lot of publicity. And then Sean Hannity started uh, retweeting and linking back to us, and so we got a lot more attention from that. So, uh, so the thing has taken off, and there are some fairly prominent people that are among those members, too, broadcasters and people that have... Uh, Monica Crowley and others who have endorsed us. So, I mean, it's been, it just took off like a rocket mm. in, in just a, in a moment, and we never could have expected. So, we've been scrambling to try to keep up with. Um, <laughs> right. you know, next time, I guess I would have a plan ahead of time. I figured it would be months. I didn't think it would be days. So, no, I mean, um, you guys are on a roll. And by the way, I want to mention I'm not advocating that we go out and protest. I mean, I'm just suggesting that. We sure. ought to think about it since that's how they play ball. And I should mention to you, Brian, that my program, even here at this small station, I've already been notified that the anti-bias police are monitoring me. And there's already been an article about me throwing some pretty hard rocks at me. 
So I want to be careful. I'm not advocating anything like uh, protests. Right. I'm just simply suggesting that that's how the other guys do it. Now, Brian, I mentioned uh, just before you came on that I want. I kind of wondered out loud whether or not this effort, how concerted it is, how organized it is to knock out anyone who doesn't genuflect to the left. And um, Media Matters, I think, has come up as an organization that might be behind some of this. You know, that's uh, George Soros's turf group. Well, what can you tell us about that? Well, that's the problem. I mean, they are well-funded on the left. I mean, they have tens of, you know, millions of dollars at their disposal for these efforts. And Media Matters has been funded by a billionaire financier, currency destroyer, George Soros, for right. uh, many, many years. And... Uh, the fact is that on, on the conservative end, you know, we have, you know, duct tape and rubber bands and, and paper clips and, you know, we try to put together groups with that. And, and that's about all we have. And on their side, they have mountains of money. So, and when conservative groups do get money, it ends up misallocated. There are people in DC who steal it or whatever. It just, we, we don't have what they have. And, so what happens is we're always on the, the wrong end of these things. That's why we lose most of the battles, and that's what's going on right now. So, you know, a couple of us just try to do what we can to fight back on a, you know, on a, almost on a lark. Or just, I mean, we've put together many political groups before. We've been involved in politics for, you know, decades each. But we also know how daunting a task this can be up next to them. They're really organized, and, you know, they also have, I mean, they have rabid support on social media networks so when they go after somebody I mean Sean Hattie's lucky to still be on the air today mm. uh, trust me I mean he really is given what's going on up against him right now yeah I mean he's already hired had to hire a staff of lawyers and it's um, you know they're, yeah. they're out with, with like the pitchforks to try to take him down right. I'm surprised right. they never yeah. really put a finger on Rush Limbaugh either but you know. Well, the difference is, yeah, now they, well, they've come pretty close to removing Russia many times. And the difference, well, first of all, you were mentioning uh, Sean and his lawyer. So what he did essentially was he put together a war room uh, where he could fight back. So as soon as he heard that O'Reilly was uh, was removed from Fox, he put together a team of lawyers and, and just mm -hmm. and everything he could gather in 24 hours and just filled a room with people. So he realized that he saw all the mistakes that Bill O'Reilly made, which was just to kind of sit there and let him, you know, he just kind of allowed himself to go down in flames. And, you know, I mean, he, he's a whole different ballgame. But in terms of Rush, they've come very close to removing Rush in the past. And the, the bottom line is, though, is that he owns his radio program, and it's harder to get rid of him. Um, uh, as, so it's a different situation. You know, there's the control issue, whereas Sean O'Reilly or anyone on Fox is still under the control of 21st Century Fox, and the younger Murdochs have now taken control. Yep. And that's the difference. The younger Murdochs are liberals. Rupert, Rupert Murdoch wasn't necessarily so much a conservative, but he's more of a businessman, and he has always seen the profit in catering to conservatives. He's seen that it's lucrative, it gets ratings, it brings revenue. Uh, whereas the younger Murdochs are guided by ideology. I don't, you know, I don't know how bright they are, and then their spouses are, you know, calling the shots, right. and they're hanging out at parties in the Upper East Side. It's just in the Hamptons, and it's a snooty little scene they have going there, and they're part of that, and their friends at their party say, how can you have someone like, you know, Sean Hannity on your channel? And so that's what this is really yeah, they about. Yeah, they, they want to be part, one of the beautiful people. Brian well, Maloney's my guest. Stop the Scalpings is the organization. You can check them out online. 
Uh, Brian, what do you think is going to happen to Fox? I mean, after all, their whole brand has been that they're the one station that has not been 100% left wing. Um, you know, are they going to are they going to start losing in the in the market market share? Well, that's exactly right. Because what's happened is they spent twenty plus years building that brand, and and now they're just torpedoing it overnight. And and that is because you have there's an internal campaign of destruction, there's an external campaign of destruction from the left. So you have, uh, like you said, the brand being tarnished. And I've been doing a lot of interviews this week, and I've been telling people that to me it's like playing you know you've got a country music station you start playing classical on it you know and then you wonder why the you know the listeners change the dial you know change the station and that's really what it is so you start putting programming on there that doesn't suit what that audience wants they go they're they're angry they leave you know and i think that um that would go for and i, I always use the music analogies because people have a hard time understanding well what's the big deal if you put on some liberal shows or whatever and then i just say well you know take your favorite hard rock station and put two hours of jazz in the middle of the day and are you going to tune in right you know, and you're not right. and you know you know it so that's the easy way for people to relate to it the people are looking for programming that interests them just like people listen to npr or whatever who are on the left and that's what they like you know people have what they like and for some reason in society now you can't have views that are opposing yours you have to eliminate them and I, it's a sick sad thing. I mean, here you are in this academic college environment there. I don't know how you survived doing a show there. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's very, it's very, it's like, I'm like the fiddler on the roof, you know, one good gust yeah. of wind is going to knock me to my death. Um, I want to hear the story how you even got a show on there because well, I can't yeah. believe there aren't pitchforks outside right now. I mean, well, they, they didn't quite know who they, who I was at first. Now they do. They've already oh. written an article calling me racist and, and other names. Oh, great. Um, yeah, Brian, you know, the, the, the um, talk radio is generally a conservative medium because people don't want to hear liberalism on the air. That's been proven over and over again. Nobody wants to be driving around and listening to someone tell them they need to raise taxes or, you know, more regulation or a weak, right. weak you know, position in the world or any of these other leftist positions. So, you know, your average person likes conservative talk. That's just a fact. And radio stations are money-making entities, and they're going to put on the air whatever makes a profit. So I don't know how they're going to, you know, they can't force this. I mean, you know, it's just not going to happen. I mean, no left host has really ever made it. Well, you've worked in radio for a long time. I have as well. And and you've probably seen more than one programmer come through the door at one of the stations you worked at who decided that he didn't like the, the conservative mm. politics or whatever, and he was going to do something about it, or he was going to, or could have been a music station, and I don't like the bands we're playing, we're going to start playing these ones instead. And you know, when you play what you like, uh, what happens is, you know, and you think that you can force people to keep listening, the truth is you can't. You can't make people read your newspaper either. You can't make people look at your website. You can't force, you can't shove your views down people's throats. And I think, you know, in a college campus environment where you have a real bubble, uh, you know, you have kids coming of age now who think that, you know, well, we're just, we'll just force everyone to think as we do, but you can't. Yeah. You just, you know, you can't. Well, you know, I was here. You holler and riot, but you can't. Yeah, and it's like people are, I don't like to use the word brainwashed, but I would say conditioned, uh, not just by the college, but even by their upbringing, so that when they hear me talk about and do a critical analysis of how the left has damaged and been destructive to the African-American community going back about a half a century, 
they think that I'm therefore I've got something against black people. I mean, that's right. how they hear that. You know, they're not well, used to. Yep. Yeah. You have one radio show and you're speaking to students right now who go through an entire day of courses where one professor after another, one student after another, one administrator after another is essentially saying anyone that, you know, is, is anywhere away from these views right here is a racist. So you're one show and you're, look what you're up against. And I just, you know, I mean, I, I give you a lot of credit for, for getting in there and getting his voice in, but it's, uh, you know, opposition voices on campus now have almost been completely extinguished. And so, I mean, really, I mean, I look at my son, he's 16, and I think he's heading to college, and I think, wow, I mean, do I even want to send him? I mean, he's yeah. so bright, and he's so intelligent, and I think I'm going to pay money to send him into this rabid political environment uh, where there really isn't learning anymore. There really is just no. regurgitating an ideology, and that's sad. It's become a soapbox, and but you've uh, but your your son is well versed in what's really going on, much more so than your average student arriving at college. Uh, he knows what to expect. Whereas you get these young people going in who are they're like putty, you know. Anyway, well, Brian Malone. Yeah, I, I mean, they didn't. Yeah, I want to thank you for joining me. Stop the scalpings, Brian. Let me know where people can uh, get more information about sure. about you and your group. Well, the best thing to do is either on Twitter or Facebook. Just do hashtag stop the scalpings, one word, hashtag stop the scalpings. You'll find us easy enough that way. I, that's how I recommend it. Thanks again, Chuck. Thank you, Brian. Okay, take care. Brian Maloney is with Stop the Scalpings. Um, he is a longtime media critic, former WRKO guy. It's a media equalizer. Uh, let's see. I'm going to try to do a couple of PSAs here if I can figure out the various buttons and configuration. Remember when your neighbor found us naked in the car and the time some direction got us kicked out Getting frisky in the dark I gave your eye a poke I think the dog is also in the bed Do I smell smoke? You and me We never give up You and me We never give up You and me We never give up You and me Okay, just trying to get uh, the PSA. No, I don't think I'm going to be able to do that. All right. I think because I've got uh, a radio show going in another format, I'm having a little trouble getting the PSA. <laughs> Sometimes, though. You don't need to get a second job as a stuntman. You just need an internet connection. Don't get left behind. Start your personal savings plan with the tips and tools on feedthepig.org. That way, you don't need to sell your soul to the devil. Fifteen bucks is the best I can do. All right, deal. Brought to you by the American Institute of CPAs and the Ad Council. Woo! Let's get crazy! In movies, when someone at a party jumps into a pool fully dressed, everyone cheers them on and jumps in too. Just so you know, in real life parties, nobody jumps in after you. You just look stupid. Come on, jump in. Come on. Most party fouls are pretty dumb, but if you decide to drink and drive underage, you could lose your license and your freedom. 
Learn more at ultimatepartyfoul.org. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. The Cambridge Bicycle Committee says, get on your bikes, have fun, and ride safe. Here's how. A face and light, shoots a light at night. The stop signs apply, you all right. Watch for the man sitting in his car. He's gonna kick that door ajar. Go with the flow, don't go the wrong way. Put that helmet on your head today. Well, all right. A message from the Cambridge Bicycle Committee. Thank you very much. And I'm back, Chuck Morse, every Thursday, 10 a.m., right here at um, AM 91.5 WMFO Tufts University, uh, Medford, uh, Somerville, Boston. Uh, I want to thank again Brian Maloney for joining me. He is with the um, Stop the Scalping. They're talking about how the left is going after any media figure, uh, any commentator who doesn't uh, genuflect to the left. Um, and his uh, his group is uh, he's also the editor of Media Equalizer. And shortly we'll be joined by Heather McDonald. She is the author of The War on Cops. She's a Manhattan Institute fellow, a, um, a, a longtime uh, conservative scholar, uh, writer uh, of columns and books. And she recently had a rather ugly experience, um, which would have otherwise been routine, speaking at the Claremont McKenna College in, in California. We're going to talk with her about what exactly happened there and how this is a reflection of what's going on. Um, I think that it, I keep hearing people tell me that um, these sorts of protests and the one against um, Ann Coulter and Milo Janowicz at, um, at the University of California, Berkeley, it's being done by so-called outside agitators, as we used to say back in the 60s. And I think that that is half true. That's true that the, the so-called outside agitators... Uh, groups, you know, the the Antifa, uh, so-called. They're, who knows who they are? That's an interesting question. I think it's the same old communist groups that have always been around. I don't know if there's anything new there. Um, they might be more energized now that President Trump is in office. Um, no question about that. And when Obama was in office, they were a little bit more subdued because they probably sensed that Obama was their guy. So let's not make too much noise, you know. Let's let's hold off. Now they're they're out in the, they're out on the street, but I think that it's also true and equally true that the students on campus are fairly organized on the left uh, and and fairly able to suppress um, opposition. Um, I'll just bring this up briefly, and I, I just wrote an article about it that will be hopefully next week up on Newsmax and that is the uh, the situation right here at our very own Tufts University where on the eve of Passover the student senate voted in secret to uh, boycott the state of Israel now I don't want to go too much into it because I know the anti-bias police are listening but 
I will suffice it to say that that vote, which was taken in secret, uh, which is unusual, by the way, coincided two international incidences that were not commented on by the Senate of Tufts and were ignored. I'm not going to say what they were. You can look at the newspapers and find out for yourself. But the fact is, and I also applaud the Tufts University administration for coming out against that and saying, no, thank you. And for Jonathan Greenblatt, a Tufts University graduate, now the national head of the Anti-Defamation League, who came out against it while he accepted an honorary degree or an award of some sort on the campus. Um, So the college has done the right thing. That's not the question. The question is, how is it that some left-wing group was able to do this and do it in the cloak of secrecy and get it done and get it over the over the plate. I mean, I suppose that maybe um, it's a good sign that they had to be so secretive because they know that I would think, and I, I have no idea, I have no way of knowing this, my evidence is strictly anecdotal, but that the majority of students at Tufts University do not support that. And that's why they had to operate with such a cloak of secrecy. Um, But I bring it up only because these are leftist agendas. And they have become, they've always been around. I mean, I remember back in the 1970s um, when my, my brother was a student at the University of Massachusetts in Amherst. And there was all this political ferment. I, I was out there. I was walking around. You had, um, you know, left wing and right wing and everybody was out. But you didn't have this level of authority uh, where the left really controlled the high ground and the argument. And they were really in a position where they could um, silence dissent and even destroy it. And by the way, that's what um, Brian Maloney's talking about in the national media right now. They are silencing anyone who dissents from the leftist perspective. Now, while I wait for Heather McDonald to join me, and that should be in a few minutes, um, and I'm not going to read from my article directly, but I will just say that my article about the BDS situation at Tufts, the boycott Israel situation. It's not about Tufts. I just uh, mentioned that only as, a, as the entree to the article. I get into, in a more broad sense, in a more philosophical sense, exactly why the, why, um, the enemies of Israel have been successful to a certain degree in their marketing campaign to destroy Israel and that that marketing campaign is entirely aimed at the left because conservatives are not interested. Conservatives support Israel. So don't most liberals. We're talking left of of liberal here. That the BDS campaign is specifically set up to target those people, to bring them in, to sell to them this idea that you know, there's some virtue in boycotting Israel. Now, 
I'm not going to get into the complexities of the conflict between Israel and the Palestinian Arabs. That's a big subject. I'll say one thing about it, and that is that every time Israel tries to help the Palestinian Authority develop some kind of a governing infrastructure, the Palestinian Authority takes most of the money, both from the Israelis and internationally, and instead they spend it on paying families of people who go in and slaughter Jews. You know, and if you kill, you know, if you kill two Jews, you get more money. If you kill three Jews, you get even more. So, you know, they're not exactly um, operating in a way that would encourage the development of a, a peaceful and prosperous and democratic Palestinian Arab entity, even if that were a good idea. And I think to a certain extent it would be a good idea theoretically. But instead their leadership um, is engaged in war against Israel. I mean they're, they're just um, they're paying people to go in and kill Israelis. And so you know this is something that we ought to consider when we when our students are involving themselves in condemning the state of Israel. Um, but the topic of my article is more why it is that um, that an anti-Israel position would be um, something that left-wing students particularly, but leftists generally, internationally, why it is that they would embrace that. After all, if you look at this thing objectively, Israel is probably the most democratic um, society. It is the most democratic society in the Middle East um, in terms of um, individual rights, rights for women, rights for gay people, rights for minorities, rights for you know, multi, it's multi-ethnic, multi-religious, multi-racial. And uh, so why is it that they would specifically target Israel? I mean, that's that's the question. And we are now joined by Heather McDonald, uh, the author of The War on Cops. Uh, she's a Manhattan Institute scholar. Heather, thanks for joining me this afternoon. And um, there we go. Yeah, there it is. Heather, hi. Thanks for joining me. Hi. Thank you. Um, Heather, could you... I, I've introduced you and I've, I've mentioned your book. Uh, I'd like you to just... In a nutshell, tell my audience exactly what happened when you went to speak at Claremont McKenna University. Mm-hmm. Okay. Are, are we on air right now? Yes, we are. Oh, thank you. Okay. You're welcome. Well, uh, basically, the building where I was supposed to speak was blockaded uh, by about 250 to 300 protesters chanting, drumming, uh pounding on the glass walls to prevent any fellow students from entering the building or to prevent faculty. I was escorted into the building via a secret passageway out of the reach of the protesters. Uh, there had been planned a series of meetings with students and a dinner uh, beforehand, and there were supposed to be 
well over 100 people attending. In fact, the hall was completely empty. I gave my speech uh, to a camera. It was live streamed. Hmm. During the speech, the few people that were in the room, mostly police officers, were riveted by what was happening outside, uh, people pounding on the glass. I was able to take two questions that had been uh, forwarded in by people watching on live stream, but after that, the police decided that the situation outside was getting too dangerous, and so the uh, interaction with the questioners from afar was peremptorily ended, and I was hustled out the building into, uh, again, through a secret passageway, this time through the kitchen, into a waiting police van and sped away to the uh, Claremont Police Department. The police uh, had set up some barriers around the building beforehand to try and prevent a blockade, but they did absolutely nothing to prevent the students from uh, overturning their security barriers and taking control of the building. Heather, I've been, I've heard that the um, people that are involved in these kinds of ugly, uh, violent uh, protests are not students, that they come from the outside. They're what we used to call back in the 60s outside agitators. Um, what, what, did you, what, what have you observed with regard to, um, to who is doing this? Well, I observed nothing because I was uh, <laughs> right. put in a safe house initially, and um, I saw this. I, I heard the chanting for the two hours before. I saw some students walk by. I saw a petite blonde in a, with her face covered by a Palestinian headscarf and a battery pack on her back for amplifying her bullhorn. Uh, but the videos that I've seen. These were clearly students. This was not the black mm -hmm. bloc anarchists. There, there were some people who were masked, but this had been a call uh, on a person of color page for uh, the students at the five related Claremont colleges to shut me down. And I think this was purely a student effort. The uh, it's a reflection of what's happening on campus. I mean, I'm right now broadcasting here at Tufts University in Medford, Mass, and I've already been put on notice that I'm being investigated by the anti-bias police. And uh, the paper, the college paper's done an article about me, where they throw some pretty hard rocks at me. Um, you know, at least literally. And uh, you know, the atmosphere is is one of fear. Uh, students are afraid to speak to me. They won't call in. Um, you know, and I don't blame them. You know, they have their the parents are spending fifty grand a year. They don't want to get investigated. They don't want someone to call this anti-bias group, and they could end up losing, you know, everything. I mean, it, it's an atmosphere of, I mean, for lack of a better word, it's fascism. Well, I don't know how one avoids the word, and I'm reluctant to engage in the same type of ridiculous hyperbole that the left engages in, such as calling me a an anti-supremacist, a white supremacist, fascist, uh, racist. Yet, when you have people that are, in some cases, using violence, as we saw in the Milo protests in, in Berkeley, 
feeling entitled to sucker punch their perceived opponents uh, and and deciding on their own force who gets to hear what and what is appropriate to be in the public arena. I, I just don't know how you not call that fascism or a soft totalitarianism. It's it's absolutely astounding, and my my hat always goes out now to these intrepid college Republican clubs that are willing to bucket because, as you say, uh, you never know how much power is going to be wielded against dissenting opinion. The, the real problem here, obviously, is the administrators yes. and the faculty mm-hmm. that are allowing such ignorance to be uh, common and, yeah. and accepted among students. I mean, the, the ridiculous potted theory that they throw out claiming that uh, in, at Pomona, for instance, there was a, a letter that went out by, again, these students of color to the Pomona president complaining about his wand defense of free speech after the blockade of my speech. And, and they have these ridiculously shallow claims that, well, the Enlightenment was what gave rise to imperialism, colonialism, racism, homophobia, you know, misogyny, you name it. None of these students have read Voltaire or Diderot or, uh, you know, any, any of the Enlightenment thinkers or, or Hume, mm. Kant. It's absurd. They know nothing. And yet they're allowed to get away with these embarrassing efforts at, at showing off their, their high theory that has a consequence that really should not be tolerated on an American university. Well, they've completely and utterly embraced cultural, if not literal, Marxism and the uh, Marxist theory of exploitation or conspiracy theory of exploitation in the literal sense. I mean, they, you know, it's the facts of the matter are really not relevant. It's it's communist facts if they fit into a, a view. But you point out, and I think quite rightly, that the problem is also, or probably is mainly, the administration. I mean, these people have always been around. You know, they've always been on campus. But what gives them the kind of ability now to do something like like censor you and have you have to go through a, a horrendous experience that no American um, you, you know, intellectual should ever have to face. That's only because of an administration that permits it. They didn't have to permit it. They did permit it. This, this, this happened because of them. Well, you know, I hope that this issue and it finally wakes up the American public to what is happening to universities. They they seem to care about the public about the free speech issue, but there's um, something even deeper that underlies this, which is the colonization of the university by identity politics yes. and victim ideology. I I don't know about it. It's Marxist, but it's something sort of even more narcissistic. I think, which is the worldview that. You know, to be a a college student today on campus, if you're a member of one of these privileged victim groups, ever growing in number, you're oppressed. I mean, this is absurd. There's no more privileged position 
in history than to be an American college student, and yet the administration encourages the identity politics, encourages the victimology, and they have whole bureaucracies set up, the diversity bureaucracies, to fuel this student delusion. And so there's a codependency hmm. between these students and, and the bureaucrats. I think that this identity politics, when you get down to it, it's really no different than the very white supremacy that they complain about, which is also identity politics. It's this belief that people are defined by such issues as race, however that's defined, or ethnic background, or 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 sex or sexual orientation and that these things become who someone is i think that if you take a look at the way like women's studies are taught in some colleges um you know black studies they actually teach the students that um that women or black people or people of different ethnic backgrounds that they are literally different you know it's it's classic racism actually it's no different than white supremacy. And then there's, of course, the us versus them, the, the oppression element that, that gives it fuel. That's the, that's the engine that makes the thing run. Right. I mean, there, and it's not just a few colleges where that's taught. It's, it's virtually every college now. I mean, there's not a single moment in the humanities, practically, that is not taken over by this. And it's... Not just they're being taught that they're different, but that they're oppressed. They're taught to see themselves as victims. And so they go around for the rest of their lives with chips on their shoulder, unable to take advantage of the opportunities that are there. Uh, Heather, I want to thank you for sharing the situation uh, that happened to you, because um, this is just, I think, the beginning of what we're going to be seeing as, as more conservatives are driven off of the public stage. Um, can you tell me briefly, because I know we only have a minute or so, about your book, The War on Cops? Well, I take on the Black Lives Matter narrative that holds that policing is systemically racist and that we're living through an epidemic of racially biased police shootings of black males. And I show that those claims are false. Uh, a, a greater percentage of white and Hispanic homicide victims are killed by a cop than black homicide victims. 12% of all whites and Hispanics who die of homicide are killed by a police officer compared to 4% of black homicide victims who are killed by a police officer. Mm-hmm. And uh, policing is actually the government agency most dedicated to the proposition that Black Lives Matter, proactive policing has saved tens of thousands of minority ma- lives over the last two decades. But that that triumph over crime is now at risk, thanks to the Black Lives Matter rhetorical assault on the police that has also resulted in last year a 50% increase in gun murders of officers uh, because officers are backing off of proactive policing in high-crime minority neighborhoods, and we're seeing uh, in many, many cities a almost unprecedented surge in, in homicides and shootings and other violent crime. <clears throat> well, that's, of course, the, um, the other side of the coin with Black Lives Matter, which is that 
it's it's a fairly open war against police, and the result is that police have left the field of battle. They don't want to be at war. They risk their lives every day going out and trying to actually help the 99.9% of people in minority neighborhoods um, get on with their lives and protect them from these thugs. So the result is you have cities now like, like Baltimore, where the mayor, after having completely thrown the police under the bus last year, they're now asking the federal government to come in with, uh, I guess, military assistance because it's gotten so bad. Well, yeah, and they're also, I, I just, I have a piece out currently in the National Review. The most bizarre thing is Jeff Sessions offered to say, I, I'm, I'm not going to put you under a federal consent decree. You know, you, if you want to reform your department, be my guest. You can do it on your own. I trust you to run your department constitutionally. And the mayor and the police chief just had a fit and said, oh, no, please do not give us autonomy. We want to be under a you know, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollar federal monitor, overpriced federal monitor filling out reports all the time. So Baltimore now has its highest per capita homicide rate in its history. Chicago, there were 4,300 people shot last year, one person every two hours. If you believe Black Lives Matter, you'd think the cops were shooting a lot of people because the victims are practically all black. In fact, the Chicago cops shot 25 people 0.6% 0.6% of the total, virtually all of them armed and dangerous. Yeah, it's a sad situation. Heather McDonald, um, can uh, let my listeners know where they could get information about you and your books and articles. Well, the book is on uh, Amazon, The War on Cops, and it's certainly at bookstores. And uh, I guess the best way is the Manhattan Institute website, which is manhattan-institute.org for getting... I think they have a pretty complete list of my articles there. All right, Heather, I want to thank you for joining me this afternoon. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Chuck. All right, take care. Okay, that's Heather McDonald. She's uh, the author of The War on Cops, Manhattan Institute fellow. Uh, Check it out. You know, this is um, an important uh, scholar, someone who uh, offers, I suppose, a voice that's alternative to the left, but it's a... a, um, it's a responsible voice. It's a, you know, it's a voice that um, ought to be um, heard in an institution that honors the idea of a free and open exchange of ideas. Something that, um, unfortunately, many of our American institutions of higher learning are shrinking away from, which is why I bring her on the show. Anyway, you're welcome to join me, Chuck Morse, in the final segment here. 855 855- 9159636 Getting back to my article in the that will be appearing next week in Newsmax um, and that is about um, the cause of the why the um, BDS is a you know the anti boycott Israel movement why that's a left-wing thing? What 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 is the what is the appeal to the left? Why do left-wingers want to attack um, a society that is one of the you know, certainly by no means utopian, of course, but is uh, you know is a very progressive society? Um, let me just read a little bit from my article. The sales pitch is the same two-pronged appeal that the enemies of Israel 
make to the international left in general, that sales pitch being to students. And that is an attack on Israel as a capitalist state and as a Jewish state. Uh, More broadly, the attack against Israel is a vanguard attack against capitalism and religion. The left views capitalism, private ownership of production, private ownership of property, and religion, belief in a God that creates laws that transcend human manipulation, as the main obstacle standing in the way of their materialistic understanding of what constitutes societal progress. Karl Marx called for the annihilation of Judaism in his infamous pamphlet, quote, On the Jewish Question. First published in 1846, the, the screed would be later republished under the title A World Without Jews and would become canon for the left until World War II made such blatant anti-Semitism unfashionable. Marx wrote that Judaism was responsible for introducing such forms of, quote, false consciousness as, quote, self-interest, huckstering, and money, unquote. And that these false idea or invented ideas were devised in part, as part of a sinister conspiracy on the part of the bourgeoisie to, quote, exploit workers. Marx used these terms as code words for private property and free trade. If Judaism were made impossible, to use Marx's term, then Marx reasoned that these forms of, quote, false consciousness would wither away, along with the family, sovereignty, and individual identity itself. This would lead, according to Marxist understanding, to the final stage of societal progress, where all humanity would become de facto equal and all material would become automatically collectivized. Marx called this final stage of progress communism, and he viewed religion as the opiate of the masses, as part of the conspiracy of the bourgeoisie to exploit the masses with false hypnotic ideas. Thus, the left seeks to destroy Israel for the same reason that Marx sought to destroy Judaism. Indeed, the left seeks to undermine Israel for the same reasons that they seek to undermine America and Christianity. Since outright war is too risky, at least at this time, and since the forces of freedom are too strong, they seek to enact their agenda gradually through subterfuge and subversion. They take a long view and are willing to wait centuries to enact their unnatural agenda. Israel's Arab and Islamic enemies fear a democratic Israel, one that respects property rights and the rights of the individual, as such a society threatens their authoritarian oligarchies. They are afraid that their own people might look at how genuinely progressive Israel is and respond by waking up and demanding control over their own lives and societies. These enemies have much in common with the international left, their natural allies, and they know how to manipulate leftists, particularly young college students who attend such privileged institutions as Tufts University. Generally, people who come from hard backgrounds, those young people who work or who are of faith, 
are less susceptible to the leftist siren song. Okay, so so that's my article. It's going to be published probably, my articles are usually published on Tuesdays at Newsmax.com. You're welcome to read it on the opinion page there. And um, again, I want to thank Brian Maloney for joining me earlier. Brian is the editor of Media Equalizer, and he's launching this new group called Stop the Scalpings. <clears throat> Check it out. It's online. And Heather McDonald from the Manhattan Institute. Her book is The War on Cops. And uh, she just had a her like just a, a harrowing experience speaking about these issues at the uh, Claremont McKenna College. I suppose that... Um, the propaganda put forth is that she's got something against black men and women because she's uh, criticizing the influence that Black Lives Matter has had on um, on our politics. And, uh, you know, we, we have, of course, a situation where, again, reasonable people cannot... It's not that they, they can't. It's that they're... It's like, I think that this was the thesis against me in the Tufts Observer article where they threw out the accusation that I'm racist without qualifying it in the article at all. But as I look at the archives of this program, and by the way, the program is podcasted um, at, at iTunes and Stitcher and a bunch of other places, Google Play, um, I've listened to the fact that my only real discussion about race has been a critique of how left-wing policies and left-wing ideas have been damaging, and I would suggest, to the African-American community going all the way back to the 1960s and how they basically snatched away from a large segment of the black community the opportunity to become more successful and more integrated into our economy and our society. Um, I'm not suggesting that racism itself is going to go away. It's not. That's an unfortunate and dark side of, of, of human nature. But what I'm suggesting is that it's almost putting aside racism. The, the way the policies of the left toward the black community damage that community and as such it exacerbated racism. It kept racism as a real social problem, one that hurts people or prevents people from getting ahead. Right? I mean, like, I know in this country that we have anti-Semitism. I don't doubt that for a second. But I'm speaking here as a Jew. Anti-Semitism is not going to prevent me from conducting my life as I see fit, from getting ahead. It's not a factor in my life. So, you know, my analysis is that the left's policies actually perpetrated racism in the literal sense, in that they made, they created problems for the black community. They hurt black people. And as a result, they exacerbated racial conflict. Um, you know, once in a while, I suppose... Anti-Semitism rears its head in the form of boycotting Israel, which is anti-Semitic. And um, I speak out against that. 
another left-wing uh, you know, attempt to um, compromise Judaism and Israel and as such create conflict or dialectic between groups. But um, the main topic is that because of this sort of analysis, someone hearing this on campus, and I think there was a particular student here who heard this, and his name is mentioned in the article. I'm not going to mention it here. Uh, but you can read it at Tufts Observer. The article is called Morse Code. He heard these comments, and in his context the context in which he lives and which he's probably been conditioned, he thinks that means I guess something against black people, that I'm racist. Um, and that to me is, well, I mean, it just, it just shows how far and how successful left-wing propaganda has become. I would suggest that Donald Trump has in his own often awkward manner and inarticulate syntax, he has put to the test this kind of political correctness because he didn't he didn't cower in its in its in the face of it. This is a kind of an informal tyranny. It's a, a, a soft totalitarianism, not so soft in the case of um, what Heather McDonald just had to deal with at um, Claremont McKenna, but soft in that we're afraid that if we have any kind of a public dialogue on social issues pertaining to race, ethnicity, uh, gender, or women as or sex as, as it's more accurately described, or sexuality, that we can likewise be attacked. He put that to the test. He stood up to it, and it didn't really stick to him. Um, and for that, I think that all of us, regardless of where we may fall on any issue or where our political orientation is, we owe him a debt of gratitude. Zach, how are you? How are you doing, Chuck? I'm doing pretty well. I'm, I'm good. What's, what, what do you have coming up, up today? Uh, you, can, uh, you can take time. I got oh, okay. I mean, uh, all right, all right. We've got... Zach going coming on right after me. And um, I shall return the usual time next week, 10 a.m. Check out my books available at Amazon.com. My column will be up at Newsmax on uh, next Tuesday. My, my, and this program, of course, is part of my, um, my podcast, which is available at iTunes, Stitcher, um, and um, a bunch of other places. Anyway... I want to thank you all for joining me this afternoon. Have a good day, everybody. Let me see if I can. It may be hard to believe, but people just like you are already saving money. Feedthepig.org makes it easy. Their simple savings plan teaches you how to start saving without going overboard. So you don't need to mooch off your friends. You going to finish that grape? You mean the one in my mouth? You don't need to stop buying the necessities. What you're smelling is a natural musk. Ew. You don't need to be a medical test subject. How do you feel? Mostly okay. I... <laughs> Sometimes, though. You don't need to get... We need a new stuntman. Let's break for lunch.
much. You just need an internet connection. Don't get left behind. Start your personal savings plan with the tips and tools on feedthepig.org. That way, you don't need to sell your soul to the devil. Fifteen bucks is the best I can do. All right, deal. Brought to you by the American Institute of CPAs and the Ad Council.